Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, Passion, today with a message entitled, The King Has Come. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, It is a fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we are dealing with God. You know, sometimes I wonder whether much of our life with God is this clash between what we want for ourselves and what God knows we actually need. So often we approach God with our preconceived notions of what God should be providing for us. You know, God give me a husband, or God give me romance and love, or God give me a better job, or God get me into university. God give me my dream house. I mean, that kind of thing. And God knows the difference between what we want and what we desperately need for our eternal well-being. And God is determined to give us not what we want, but what we need for his glory and for our eternal good. The events of Palm Sunday, the events of Jesus riding into Jerusalem five days before his crucifixion, is just one of those amazing contrasts between what people want and what people need. It's a contrast between what the people of Jerusalem expected and what Jesus would actually give them. It's fascinating to study this text with that in mind, and will tell us something about our lives today. John 12, 12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was because they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The reference here to next day, well, that's Sunday. It was on Saturday that Jesus had been in the home of a man named Simon the leper, and a dinner was given for him there. Mary had poured expensive perfume on his head and feet, and Jesus recognized this act of love, this act of preparing him for his burial. And already one begins to see the contrast between what Christ's followers were expecting and what Christ was expecting to accomplish. They were expecting him to ascend to the throne of David, and he was expecting to go to Jerusalem to be murdered. They expected glory, and he expected disgrace. That's the amazing contrast here. And so it's Sunday. And according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus climbs up the backside or the east side of the Mount of Olives. He leaves Bethany. He comes to the next village. That village was called Bethpage. And from there, he sends two of his disciples, and they find a donkey, and they bring it to Jesus. In fact, the donkey is only a colt. It's a young one. In fact, it was so young, they had to bring its mother along, and Jesus sits on it. He's now prepared to ride into Jerusalem. But of course, the crowd has heard he's coming. It's Passover. 
Population of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus would have been somewhere around, I guess, 50,000 people, but at Passover, it would normally swell to well over 120,000. But I have a sense that with Jesus appearing at this Passover, well, the population might even have been higher than that. Let me put the situation in context. Passover, if you don't know it, it's the Jewish celebration of the deliverance of the Jews from Egyptian slavery. It was a celebration. It was a festival. It was a a joyful proclamation that God delivers his people from the hand of a foreign oppressor. It was always a celebration of God's salvation, but in the time of Jesus, it was a celebration that looked to the Romans very much like they were on the brink of mutiny, a religious gathering in which you get over 100,000 people shouting out for deliverance from foreign oppressors. Well, you can imagine that. Well, in fact, Passover had become important for that reason. Ever since the Babylonian captivity, for almost 600 years, Israel was enslaved by one nation and then the next. First, it was the Babylonians, then the Persians, then Greece, then Syria, now the Romans. But whenever Passover happened, Israel would gather in Jerusalem and tell the story of how God had destroyed Egypt and broken the great power of Pharaoh. And they would wait for God, this time not to send Moses, but to send King David's greater son, the Messiah. He would deliver them. And every year when Passover was finished and the Messiah had not come that year, then the Jews would say to each other, next year in Jerusalem, next year, perhaps then he will come. And the Pharisees had to walk a very fine line with the Roman overlords. See, on the one hand, they defended their right to celebrate Passover. It was a part of their religion. But on the other hand, they had to make sure that Rome understood that that Passover wouldn't be treason at all. You know, if somehow this very tricky balancing act were to be upset, well, the Romans would simply come and destroy the nation. And that would begin a period of Jewish dispersion. That's why it was tricky. But for the last three years, remarkable things have been happening. Jesus of Nazareth has come onto the scene just like the prophets predicted. He fed the multitude and healed the sick, and the blind saw and the lame walked, and the lepers were cleansed, and the good news was preached to the poor. And now, just a short time ago, Jesus had done something remarkable. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. That event was earth-shattering. It was nothing short of an action of the great God of Israel. I mean, what was greater, parting the Red Sea or raising the dead? Truly, God was among them, and there was an anticipated this year in Jerusalem. Jesus would come to Jerusalem and ascend the throne, deliver Israel from the 600-year humiliation of being in bondage. Now the word was, he's coming. He came to Bethany and now to Bethpage, and thousands upon thousands were lining the way. You know, first of all, I want you to notice the palm branches. During the time of the Maccabees, rulers who ruled Judea from 164 to 63 B.C., the Jews started to use palm branches as a symbol of nationalism the symbols of their hope for freedom. The cry, Hosanna, means save us now. So the crowds lined the way and welcomed him with palms and hosannas. And then they began to chant, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's taken from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, originally that psalm was written to encourage the pilgrims who went up to Jerusalem for Passover with a word of blessing. But in the Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, the psalm began to be thought of as pronouncing a blessing to the one 
who came in the name of the Lord. In other words, the Messiah, the one who would defeat all of the Jewish oppressors. And then, well, then the crowd began to chant something that wasn't found in Psalm 118. See, they begin to chant, even the king of Israel. They were hailing him as their king. The Pharisees are now paralyzed with fear. But the crowds didn't care about the politics of the matter. Come, they were offering, ascend your royal throne, rule on David's throne, rule us, rule the world. If you can raise the dead, nothing's impossible for you. We accept you as king. We welcome you as king. We will follow you as king. You know, too often as as we think about the events of Palm Sunday, you know, we castigate the Jews of that day for false hopes, we say. But just before we condemn them, we need to at least consider that this hope that they bore was given to them by God. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13 says of David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And speaking of the Messiah, Psalm 2 verses 8 and 9 indicates exactly what God would do with the Messiah. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, that's what the crowd wanted. They wanted it because the Bible promised it to them. And they wanted it because their souls ached from living in an oppressive world. I mean, who wants to live under oppressive Roman taxation? And who wants to live under a regime that inhibits a free expression of of hope in God? I mean, who doesn't want to be free? That's why they were there. They wanted to capture their God-given destiny. You know, in reality, they're not different from us. We want the same thing. I mean, who hasn't said, come quickly, Jesus? Who hasn't struggled through cancer or some other illness or longed for the day when sickness and disease and death will be no more? I mean, who isn't tired of crime? And who doesn't long for the day when Christ will reign in perfect righteousness? Who in dealing with the problems that they have, maybe at home or problems with money or relational problems, or who doesn't long for the day when all of that comes to an end? I have got to tell you this, this crowd wants what I want. They wanted to capture their God-given destiny. They wanted their Messiah to rule among them. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Christians around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, may God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. You know, we're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. This month, would you please consider supporting the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada across the country? Your gifts make this ministry possible. To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Aren't you tired of the rule of men and women? There's simply so much injustice in this world, so many bad laws, so much corruption. 
So many examples of the abuse of power. You know, the crowd wanted God to rule them, and I do as well. It's all that this crowd wanted. For the life of me, I, I find it so hard to condemn them. But please do remember that, that Palm Sunday is a day of amazing contrasts. This is what the crowd wanted, but now we're going to look at what Jesus actually came to give them. You know, the first tip-off that something was wrong, you know, is the fact that Jesus did not ride on a war horse. You know, if he had, I, I suspect the crowd would have been in a frenzy. They probably would have even stormed Pilate's palace and deposed him on the spot. In the ancient world, the horse was a symbol of a conquering general. But, of course, Jesus comes on a donkey and a very young one at that, so that the, the body of Jesus is sitting on this little donkey, and it might have seemed somewhat, well, you know, even comical. You know, hope stirred in hearts, the king is coming, and then there he comes around the corner, and he's riding on a tiny little donkey, his legs dragging on the ground. It's the first sign that something seems wrong. But he does it deliberately. You know, the quote in verse 15 is actually taken from two different Old Testament passages. The first is from Isaiah 40, verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. In other words, that fear not passage is an indication that for all who wanted to have God among them, this is their God. This moment, this man, probably not particularly handsome, nothing in his appearance that anyone would desire him, with very ordinary-looking clothes, with his tiny little donkey, this is God among us, almighty God, riding into Jerusalem. Behold your God, fear not, people of Israel. Wow. But there is more. John also quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9. Indeed, the context is very interesting. So let me read both verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Do you hear it? Zechariah is not denying that the Messiah will rule, for he will. That's his destiny. But Zechariah is saying that he comes to speak peace, not war. He comes to speak peace not only to Israel, but peace to the nations, peace to every nation, even to Rome and to all the lands beyond that. And by the way, I'm so glad he did that, because if he hadn't, you and I would have been destroyed. And Zechariah prophesies that he will enter the scene in a most unexpected way. And that's precisely what Jesus gave them. He gave them actually two things, and the first is simply humility. The ruler is a servant. The lion is a lamb. The leader washes the feet of his followers. The warrior enters on a donkey's colt. He comes to Jerusalem in a way that almost no one would have possibly expected or understood. Second, he comes to give salvation. Now, as we've seen, that's, that's precisely what the crowd was chanting, save us now. It's just that the crowd and Jesus meant something so different from those words. They wanted political freedom. In fact, they wanted it the way so many of us want it as well. Save me in some external manner. Take away those who oppress me. Take away my pain. Take away my sadness. Take away my frustrations and the cause of my hopelessness. Save me now. And Jesus meant it so differently, didn't he? 
he saw a very different, a far more sinister oppressor than Rome or Syria or Greece or Persia or even Babylonia. He saw back further than that, past the last 600 years, all the way back to their very first oppressor, Satan himself, and the effects of our own sin and rebellion against God. Every single human problem, without any exceptions at all, can be related back to this, our pride in our unbelief. We have refused to believe God, and we have refused to trust Him with our eternal well-being. We are sure He will not take care of us, so we want to be our own gods and take control over our own lives. Every war that has ever been fought has this as its root. Every lie that has ever been told, every angry outburst, every bit of tasty gossip we whisper to someone else, everything we steal, everything we wish so desperately we had to make ourselves happy, every nasty habit we pick up and can't shake, every act of unfaithfulness to our spouse or our children, every divorce, all poverty in this world, every bit of ugliness relates back to this one fact that we haven't trusted God to care for us. So we try to be our own gods and chart our own future. Every time we worry and every time we fail to pray, every time we act selfishly, we demonstrate unbelief and we demonstrate our pride. And so we have become a humanity filled with fear and rage and oppression and violence, betrayal, immorality, and sexual depravity. It just goes on and on. This is such a great bondage. It's so oppressive that everything is diminished in us. We don't even know what healthy human life looks like anymore. We should all be crying out, Hosanna, save us now. But we don't even know that something is terribly wrong. I find it amazing that so few people have a deep consciousness of sin. I suppose to ask human beings what sin is like is like asking a fish what water is like fish simply doesn't know. The water has been his environment, and the water, well, water is compared to what? Sin is like that. We consider it normal now. We don't feel any problem. But just like cancer, sin is killing us. And every day in hospital beds and nursing homes and in private homes and in cars and in streets and in every single setting in our country and our world, people die. They die every day. All over the world, people are dying. Some die at birth and some die at 105 and some die peacefully and some die in horrible and gut-wrenching pain. But it's always death, death every day in this world. It's become normal, all right. It's, however, an unnatural condition. Jesus knew about every single sin and as the Messiah, the one to sit on David's throne. He had come to Jerusalem to taste death on our behalf. He had come to die for us so that the angel of death would pass over us. He was the Passover lamb. That's what the king came to do. And nobody, not even the disciples, understood how profound this moment was. I wonder what Jesus was thinking when he saw the crowds with their palm branches. I wonder if he remembered a previous incident You know, it's recorded in John 6, when they had wanted to make him king by force. Or I wonder if he thought of Satan, how he had once come to tempt Jesus. He would give him all the kingdoms of this world in their glory. But Jesus had simply refused that. He refused it every single time it came up. His mission was to be glorified, sure enough. He was to rule on David's throne, and he was to be given a name above every name. And at his name, every knee should bow. But he would never receive that if he should attempt to avoid the cross. You know, it's the same with us. 
And that great passage from Philippians where the apostle Paul speaks of Jesus, how he humbled himself even unto death, death on the cross. In that very passage, Philippians 2, he says these words, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And what does he mean? Well, Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which was also yours in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 2, 3 to 5. Isaac the Syrian, who lived in the 6th century, said this about humility. The man who knows his sins is greater than the one who raises a dead man by his prayer. And it was Martin Luther who said, Until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. And Jesus on Palm Sunday will forever teach us that he had come to offer grace and salvation to all who would receive it. But he also came to teach us that the way to God is not to live for the praises and ideals of men, but it's to live for the glory of God and to submit to the plan of the Father. Jesus refused to be the kind of king that they desperately wanted, and instead he became the kind of king that we desperately needed. We wanted a king to liberate us from our immediate problems, but we needed a king to liberate us from the curse of sin, the law, and Satan himself. Thank God, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to give us what we so desperately needed. You can't have the life you need without his cross. Know that and trust in him. John, I think your message today has laid out just a series of contrasts between uh, what we think we need or what we want sometimes and what we actually need. Yeah. You know, it's important for us to continue to recognize that the brokenness of our sin is killing us. And until we come to terms with that, we won't realize how desperate we are for that solution that Christ offers us in the cross. Now, you know, there's such a beauty in the cross, Ben. There's, um, there's that marvelous Jesus who lays down his own life so that we might live. And um, let's, even though we've said it before, I mean, you know, Easter after Easter, we say it, I think, every year. I think we need to take it again to heart. My sin is far worse than I had ever imagined. Christ's sacrifice for me was far greater than I could possibly have ever thought I would receive. And yet, this is what I have received. I received from God what I needed the most. And for that reason, I want to give him thanks and praise and make this Easter count. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In Dr. Neufeld's recent blog post concerning the COVID-19 pandemic, he challenged us to consider the words of Psalm 91. So let's reflect on just two sections of that psalm. Beginning at verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And verse 14, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, in the midst of uncertain times, trust in the God that loves his children beyond measure. 
For more information about Back to the Bible, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.